0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Hope to see you soon. So it's, it's kind of funny how we have different traditions around New Year's that sort of all of us have. I was We were talking last night, Wyatt and I were talking, and he mentioned Yef, yeah, Back home, we'd be eating ham and black-eyed peas tonight. Uh, that's, that's what you do on New Year's Eve. And I thought that was kind of funny because uh, I always heard that that was like a New Year's Day thing, not just a New Year's Eve thing. And so it's just it's weird how some of those traditions sort of go. And one of the traditions is setting off fireworks. So last night, if you have dogs, your dogs hated their lives. I can't imagine what Ferdy was like last night. Um, but Because the, do- the dogs would go crazy because of all the fireworks. And if you have um, uh, the Nextdoor app, Um, which is sort of the hyper-local social media thing, Uh, you may have seen this week that there was a post uh, that went crazy. The, The city's official account went on next door and said, now don't forget everybody that... You're not allowed to set off fireworks that go up into the air and explode, which is like 90% of fireworks. Basically, they said you're allowed to have sparklers and Roman candles, okay? Uh, to which everybody on this uh, message board, whatever you want to call whatever next door is, started saying then why is there a shop on every corner selling these fireworks that you're telling me are illegal? And then some other people began to argue about their rights that the founding fathers fought (laughs) so that they could fire off fireworks on New Year's Eve and the 4th of July. And it was just sort of this, this thing that went way amok because people were defending their tradition of setting off fireworks. Sort of a... Strange tradition. I mean, Fourth of July, it makes a lot of sense. You know, we're remembering the battle that happened. New Year's Eve pretty much is just a good excuse to. Let let people play with fire, right? That's that's what we want fireworks for. The text that we're coming to this morning is a text uh, that is oftentimes preached at this time of year because it happened a week after the birth of Jesus. And so it's a story of Jesus being presented in the temple. But as we approach this story, it's got a lot of traditions. It's got a lot of things from the Old Testament going on that we don't always understand. Uh, some of us have not been Christians for a long time. Some of you here aren't Christians at all. And, and you may look at some of these stories, especially ones that go back and, and look towards the Old Testament and not know what's going on. And even some of us who have been Christians for a long time, look at some of these stories with these big reaches back to the Old Testament, and we also don't know what's going on. We don't know what these traditions are that they're sort of going through. And so I wanted to just step away and explain uh, what's going to go on in the passage that we're looking at today so that when we read it, we're going to understand what what's happening. So there were a couple traditions around the birth of small children. Well, I guess all children are born relatively small. Um, That's somewhat redundant. Uh, Around the birth of children uh, in the Old Testament and and when Jesus was born. Uh, The first one was that uh, after a woman gave birth to a son, she had to go back to the temple and make a sacrifice uh, because she was considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Now, this is sort of something that strikes us as a bit odd, right? God created childbirth. Why is God now going, hey, any woman who gives birth to a child, you're unclean? What's going on with that? It was a reminder of the fact that the curse that fell on all of mankind with Adam and Eve uh, made even the natural order of things broken. Even something beautiful like childbirth. It was was amazing. For those of you guys who don't know, Angel and Maria had their baby um, on Thursday, I believe. And a beautiful, beautiful boy. His name's Trey. He's gorgeous. He's fantastic. And so we were talking to them on FaceTime uh, later that night. And so as we're talking, he's like, uh, Justin, it was just the most amazing experience. It was just so beautiful. It was amazing. And I was sort of, as I was studying for this passage, thinking of the juxtaposition of this, this father who now has his first son and who named him after his father and himself, he's the third, they're going to call him Trey, and just sort of the beauty that he's experiencing in this moment, and then just sort of this dour feeling of the Old Testament going, and by the way, your wife's unclean. You're about to be unclean. (laughs) There's this, uh, what's going, this is a little, this is uncomfortable if we think about it for more than a second. But the reason is that even the most beautiful and natural things in our lives are marred with sin's effects. Even the most precious things are broken in one way or another. And so one of the ways that God reminded his people of this year after year, generation after generation, was to have mothers bring a sacrifice for their impurity. The other thing that's going on is that Jesus is being presented at the temple. And this is a little bit different than circumcision because this is something that was special to firstborn sons. So in ancient Israel, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and they, one of the tribes were the priests. They were called the Levites. And the Levites, any boy that was born into that family, was a servant at the temple, which meant that they probably didn't have another job. Now, how are they going to get paid? Well, one of the ways that they got paid was when you had a firstborn child, a firstborn son, you would go to the temple, and that firstborn son was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. He was supposed to be there for God's service. But what you could do is you could go and pay a fee to buy back. Uh, the word we sort of sometimes use is redeem, right? Like when you redeem a coupon. Right? We don't, most of us in this room, don't use coupons anymore when, when you get a, a star on one of your apps <laughs> and get something free when you redeem that code at the place that you go to that's what was going on and you could go and you could pay to say that this is my firstborn son and he should be dedicated to the Lord but here's what I'm going to do I'm going to pay the salaries of a priest to take his place so you sort of have all of these things going on in this story But there's one more thing before we get into our text that bears sort of understanding, which is how does the Old Testament law relate to us today? This is a tricky thing, right? How is it that all of these things that were said in the Old Testament, how does this relate to us? I mean, why aren't Angel and Maria here, right, giving the church some money so they can keep their baby, right? That... That just sounds weird when you say it, right? And we don't do that. But in the Old Testament, that's basically what you were doing. Why don't we do that? Well, the short answer is this, that there are certain parts of the Old Testament that were laws for Israel as a nation, sort of your uh, civil laws. So this is how you handle your property. This is how you handle disputes over when something happens between your ox and their ox. And all of these sort of minutiae rules that people who are in law school would study... That the rest of us would sort of shrug off and go, Yeah, I'll worry about that when the cops come and see me, right? But most of us would sort of uh, just, th- Yeah, that's fine. And so there were some laws that were a part of the state of Israel. There were other laws that were a part of the religion of Israel, that were sort of the ceremonial laws. Here's what you have to do if you need to make the purification sacrifice, like Mary did, you need to bring a lamb. And if you can't afford a lamb, you need to bring two turtle doves. And if you can't afford two turtle doves, go find two young pigeons. And sort of, you know, so there was this sort of ceremonial law that sort of laid out, if you're in this income bracket, here's how you handle it if you're in this income. So all of that was going on. Well, the best way I've ever heard to describe this, because there's also the moral law which applies to us today. Laws like thou shalt not kill. When Jesus came, he didn't undo the thou shalt not kill thing. He didn't do the thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He didn't undo those. So what's going on? The civil law and the ceremonial law have one explicit purpose. They're meant to point us ahead to the coming of Jesus. Jesus. They're meant to point us and remind us that you, Israel, you people who lived around Israel in the Old Testament, all of you in the ancient Near East, you need a Savior. And here's the signs that are going to keep reminding you that you need a Savior and that He is coming. It's like a concert poster. Right? If you were to go down on Central Avenue and go over uh, to the State Theater, what you would see is that all of the windows in the State Theater are covered... In concert signs. Right? All of them. Oh, in February, Shaky Graves is coming. And, you know, and wh- whatever else. He's not actually. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get you excited. But, <laughs> but all of these sort of, you know, they're, they're who's coming next to the theater. You know what you will not see in the windows of the State Theater? Posters for concerts from three weeks ago. Why? Why won't you see posters from concerts weeks back? Because the concerts already happened. Because what those things were pointing to, what they were aiming, what they meant to remind you of and anticipate has come. And so it's no longer necessary to hang a poster that says, your favorite band is coming October 2016. It'd do nothing but make you mad because you missed it, right? That is the function of the civil and ceremonial law. It reminds us and points us to Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, we're still under the moral law, but the civil and ceremonial law find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so all of this is meant to point us to Jesus. So let's do this. Let's read this story of Mary's purification. Let's read this story about Jesus' presentation and see what happens. So if you would stand with me. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 21 and go down to about verse 38. "...and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him," that's Jesus, "...up to, the, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So this story is sort of unexpected. What's expected is that Mary and Joseph and Jesus would go up to the temple to make the sacrifices that they needed to make. What's unexpected is people coming up and grabbing your eight-day-old baby in public. Right? This is, this is an odd thing, especially strangers. Right? When your child is that young... You kind of don't want anybody to touch them without your explicit permission, and without them filling out a long questionnaire about their health. You know, and uh, how long since you were last on antibiotics? Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> Traveled out of the country recently? Mm-hmm, yes. No. Been on any farms recently? Yes. No. I mean, you know, you you're hyper vigilant. And so Mary and Joseph come in. They come into the temple, and they're there to make the sacrifices for Mary, to take care of the ceremonies for Jesus. They're there for all of this. And in walks Simeon. And Simeon sees Jesus. And he takes him into his arms, and he begins to sing songs. And he sings a song about how this child is the Lord's Messiah. This child is the one who God said he was sending. And he starts singing over him. For those of you who aren't parents, this would be weird. For those of you who are parents, you know, this would be weird. And no sooner is Simeon done, than Anna walks in and basically starts doing the same thing singing about this baby, telling everyone about this baby. So here's the big question. Luke, who took careful details, who writes this beautiful story of Jesus' birth, includes this story for a reason. What's he doing here? What's this all about? Well the first thing as we sort of read through this that you may have noticed is that Luke falls all over himself to talk about how godly Samuel, I'm sorry Simeon and Anna were, right? He's talking about Simeon, he says Simeon is somebody who was devout and righteous. He was a righteous man who was there at the temple worshiping and God had told him that he wasn't going to die until he had seen the Messiah. And then when it talks about Anna, it said Anna had been a widow for 84 years or, or possibly for I don't math very well, 84 minus 21 it, she had been a, a widow for a long time and had spent her life praying and fasting and being at the temple and worshipping God, you have two people who are exactly the kind of people who Jesus came to save but what do both of them say when they see Jesus both of them say this is him this is it. This is the one who will save us from our sins. If there was anybody in the New Testament, especially in the story of Luke so far, that had a solid spiritual resume, it was Simeon and Anna. And yet, what do these people with this incredible spiritual resume that say when they see Jesus? I need saving. I need someone to rescue me From my sin. And this baby is the one that's going to do it. This baby is the one who's going to take away my sin, who's going to redeem us. Simeon uses the term, he says, I have seen the light, a light for your people. Anna says that she has seen redemption for all people. They both admitted by their statements that they're in need of redemption. Most of us in this room do not have the spiritual resume of Simeon and Anna. Most of us, well, unless you're going somewhere else, not many of you are here day and night (laughs) praying and fasting. That's fine. Neither am I. Most of us don't have the spiritual pedigree that they did. And yet they see Jesus and say, I need someone to save me from my sins. How often are we bold enough to admit that? See, what oftentimes happens in your heart and mind is we allow our outward traditions, we allow the way that we practice religion to get in the way of us experiencing Jesus. We think that the spiritual things we do, we think that when we pray, when we fill in the blank with your spiritual disciplines, when we do those things... In those moments, we don't really need a Savior. I've got it to, uh, G- Justin, I, I read my Bible every morning this week. Right? I, I made a New Year's resolution. I'm going to read through the entire Bible this year. G- Justin, my New Year's resolution is I'm going to pray for X number of minutes a day. And in a week from now, if you've done that, you're going to walk into church and you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. read my Bible and prayed every day. Where's the uh, where's the gold star chart in this church? Where 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 is it at that I can let people know that I'm that I, Jesus is Jesus is lucky to have me as a sunbeam. Now, okay. Most of us would never say that. But how many of us use spiritual disciplines to insulate ourselves from actually experiencing Jesus? probably more of us than we want to admit. And it's interesting in this story that there is something missing that should be glaring. Mary and Joseph are at the temple, the center of the Jewish religion, the place where everything was supposed to go on. The the place. It's not like a church. This was much bigger deal. They were at the temple. And did you notice in this passage who is not mentioned at all? Is there a single priest mentioned? No. Is there a single religious official of any sort mentioned? No. So here you have a man and a woman with no spiritual pedigree, with no religious position, who walk into the temple and immediately go, Oh, hey, guys, the Messiah's here. And you have all of the religious leaders who don't see it at all. Simeon is singing in the middle of the temple about this baby who is going to save Israel from its sins. It's going to save all of his people from their sins. And it seems to go absolutely unnoticed by the religious establishment. Anna is walking around the temple telling everybody that the Messiah is here. And it seems to go unnoted by anybody with any official position. Why? Probably because many of the people there working at the temple didn't think that they needed Jesus. Didn't think that they needed a Messiah. Didn't think that they needed saving. And so here comes this old guy and this old woman and they're babbling on about some eight day old baby and their response is hard pass I'm good I made the proper sacrifices this week I did the right thing I have kept the commandments since I was a child I'm good many of us take the same attitude whether we're a Christian or not uh, for those of us who are Christians, we like to uh, shine up our spiritual resume. And say, I don't need Jesus that much because look at all the good that I've done. I don't need Jesus that much because look how good I am at doing Jesus things. I can do this on my own. And the same thing happens uh, for, those of us, for, for those of you who, who aren't Christians very easy for us to say, I don't need that. Uh, I was talking to a friend at Bandit Coffee the other day and, and she was talking, she knows I'm a pastor and so we're, we're just talking about religious things and she was telling me how she had read uh, a book uh, that was a um, sort of medieval, um, mystical book that was about Jesus and how she had really felt, and I'm quoting here, Uh, the jesus spirit in that moment and how it was great because she really connected to that part of the divine in that moment and then she was telling me about how when she was in uh, another country she had been to this beautiful temple and had really connected to the brahma spirit and had experienced that part of the divinity And then at the end of our conversation, she said, oh, i got to go. i got to get ready for my solstice party tonight. I'm having a bunch of my friends over, and we're going to have a winter solstice party. And she sort of had a a spiritual experience where anything that seemed good, anything uh, that seemed in the moment that it was divine, became her religion. So when she read the medieval mystics, it was Jesus. When she visited the temple in Bali... It was Brahma. When she was with her friends doing earth ceremonies, it was the solstice. And so she was experiencing this, and and what she was kind of saying is, you know, I want to be spiritual, but I want to be spiritual on my terms. Because I don't need. I don't need any one thing. Any message of, of Brahma, of Jesus, of any of these other things, you know, I can just pick and choose because at the end of the day, I don't need any of them. Because today I might experience the divine myself in me. And what happens when we start to believe that is we become our own gods because I'm deciding when I'm going to have a spiritual or divine experience. That's very similar to what was going on with the priest around Jesus. They were saying, "I don't need a savior because I can experience God in all of these other ways." Crowds around hearing all this had about the same response. "I'm good. I don't need Jesus." often what happens in your life and mine, whether we're a Christian, whether we're not a Christian, whether we've been a Christian for a long time or we're really new to the faith, wherever we are, it's so easy for us to live our lives as if Jesus is a helper, not a savior. What Simeon and Anna realized is that they had problems that they could not deal with. That despite the fact that their spiritual resumes were long and excellent, they still could not meet the standard of God's perfection. I was, I was golfing, with uh, putt-putt golfing with the boys and, and some of their friends the other day. And, and as we're golfing, Wyatt and I um, are with um, Connor and Dylan. And And after every hole, Dylan would turn to us and go... Well, what score did you get? Well, we got a two. What score did you get? Oh, I got a three. And every time, he was, he was trying so hard, like, like every kid, he wanted to be able to beat his dad. Right? His standard of golf was, can I beat my dad? If I could just be my, beat my dad, I'm going to be there. I'm gonna, it's going to be great, right? Here's the problem. Most of us approach Christianity the same way. You know, if I could just be better than that guy, I'm going to be all right. If I could just do more good things than this other person over there, I'm going to be fine. Because I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm kind of good enough. I kind of have this under control. It's, what Simeon says, though, is really poignant. After he sings his song over Jesus, Mary and Joseph are kind of left in shock and awe. And Simeon doesn't quit. Instead of just going, okay, here's your baby, let me go on about my business. Simeon turns to them and he says something really strange. He says that this baby is appointed for the rise and fall Of many in Israel. In fact, Mary, it's going to be a sword that even pierces your heart. What's Simeon talking about? I think Peter uh, puts it very well in 1 Peter. He says that the stone, and he's quoting Isaiah, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone the, the person who so many people looked at and ignored the person who everybody in the temple shrugged their shoulders at who the religious leaders said no big deal to and later in life the religious leaders are the one that lead the charge to have Jesus crucified the one that was rejected has become the very cornerstone of the church and another place it says he is a rock That will fall on many, but those who fall on him will find rest. You see, the good news, bad news of Christianity is this that on the one hand, if we have no time for Jesus, if we think we have no need for Jesus, it is a sword that comes in judgment because if i say i don't need jesus i'm saying i don't need a savior i'm saying that i have enough in myself which is just not true but if we're willing to confess our sins to say i i do have stuff in my heart and even stuff like relying on my spiritual resume too much i have more brokenness in me than i want to admit far too quick to anger. Most of my thoughts are about me and getting what I want done. I don't like people who are unlike me. I don't want my kids hanging out with people that are different than me. And we, can, we, we sort of go through, and, and if we can admit that that is us. That we, whether we have a great Christian resume like Simeon and Anna, or not at all, wherever we are, if we can say, Yes, I am in need of a Savior, then Jesus stands ready to forgive us. It's interesting um, that Jesus, that they paid this price for Jesus to buy him back. Because what Luke's doing is using a great literary device, saying Jesus was redeemed from service as a priest, but in reality, Jesus was a priest of another order who would in turn redeem all of us, not with the blood of lambs, but with his own precious blood. See, while this story tells us about how Jesus was bought back according to the law, it points to the fact that Jesus buys us all back that he was reckoned as in need of redemption when in reality he is the one who through his cross can reckon us as clean there's a story of uh, Martin Luther the the pastor not Martin Luther King but Martin Luther in the 1500's and each week he would preach about this and each week He would remind uh, his people of how much they needed Jesus, of how easy it is to either get caught in our sins that we go off and do, or get caught in thinking that we're enough and that I can take care of this by myself. And, And his elders came to him one day and they said, Martin, Martin, why is it that you kind of preach the same sermon every week? Why is it that every week your sermon kind of hits the stride in the same way? And Martin Luther, who, uh, if, who was very funny, very cheeky, um, turned to his elders and said, because every week you come in here looking like people who don't believe it anymore. <clears throat> every week I need a reminder that I am broken and messed up more than I want to admit. The things that I've done, the things that I've left undone. I haven't loved God with my whole heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I need to be reminded of that week by week. That's why when when Tiffany or Ashley or Olivia, whoever does our introduction every week, that's why they say that. And that's why we say it here from the pulpit every week because we need to be reminded Again and again and again. Because if we're not, to think that I I don't actually need saving that much. Which is another reason why each week at City Church we take communion. Because it's an opportunity for us to be reminded, not just in words, not just with the Word of God, but in a way that we can touch and taste and smell.